podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Save our sports. That's the call from the UK's sport and physical activity sector. In a letter to the Prime Minister earlier this autumn, leaders from over 150 bodies wrote to Boris Johnson asking for ring-fence funding for the recovery of the sport and activity sector. In mid-November, many sports were allocated funding. They included rugby union, rugby league, tennis, horse racing, greyhound racing and badminton, amongst others. But was it enough? And did it go far enough? This is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy, the podcast that speaks to the men and women responsible for running sport in this country. John and I have enjoyed a combined five decades of sports reporting. We've covered World Cups and World Championships in numerous sports and travelled the globe to attend the Olympics, Paralympics and Commonwealth Games. We know the importance of sport for a nation's health and well-being. The Department of Culture, Media and Sport allocated £300 million worth of funding to major spectator sports impacted by the cancellation of events caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. But the community sport and leisure sector is still facing a huge crisis. Hi John Michael, it's Lisa Wainwright here. I'm the Chief Executive Officer at the Sport and Recreation Alliance. Lisa, we'll start then by asking what is the Sport and Recreation Alliance? How do you sum that up for us in a couple of paragraphs, if you like? Sure. We're the independent voice, really, for the sport and recreation sector. And we work on behalf of around about 300 different organisations from angling to zumba to mountaineering and diving, school sports, water sports. And really, our aim is to build a happier, healthier nation working with all those members. And a happier, healthier nation has never been more important, has it, than in 2020? How has this year affected you and the work that you do? In terms of of our members, as as we know through COVID, what we've had to do at an alliance is is ensure that we're really agile. Um, If you can imagine trying to work with that many members to, for example, produce their return to play plans and work with the DCMS to get those approved so that people could be working in in different environments to be COVID safe. So there was a huge amount of work originally from our policy perspective, and that's what our policy team does. We work on policies with government and we provide guidance. Um, And one of the key things, the really critical things really early on was to keep the outdoors open. You know, it was absolutely critical and many countries didn't do that, you know, and we managed to do that. And it wasn't just the, the cycling and the running that is a brilliant activities for people. We managed to get the whole outdoors open. So our, our green spaces as well as our blue spaces managed to stay open. And it was really important for physical, mental health and well-being at, at that point of the year and still is now. How challenging was it, Lisa, from the very start? Well, we didn't really know what this was, this illness was or how it was being transferred and the impact on that to now when actually we've got a bit more of an idea about it. It, it was really challenging purely because we hadn't been in this scenario before as a sector, nor had the government and things were changing minute by minute across different government departments and sport does cross different departments. So as you'll know, we were working on behalf of young people, there's a department for education, there's a department for health, there's a department for DCMS for sports. 
and, and trying to make sure when you are working at pace that those departments work together. They did an incredible job, actually, but it, it did cause confusion. And, and part of our role with Sport England was, was trying to ensure we, we kept certain areas at certain times together, if that makes sense, so that the guidance around under-18s activity, was tr we were trying to make sure that was consistent. And likewise, between DEFRA, so Plant for Environment and others, in terms of sailing, for example, making sure that the, the waterways uh, guidance was the same as the sports guidance, because all that would happen is we'd get, you know, a, a local sailing club, mine at Pittsford here, um, was getting conflicting reports that had to close or they could open. So the first part was purely the pace. Everybody was working at their, at their absolute peak um, throughout Government Sport England and, and the Alliance. Um, it was just that pace. And the frustration is, as you go down the system from a national governing body through to the clubs, it's, it's the local club that needs to try and interpret that information. And, and that's what's taken the time to get that guidance out. In terms of now, we've been through that first stage. The return to play plans are in place. Um, and they've done a phenomenal, really have done a phenomenal job in preparing the different sites that sport takes part in and recreation. Um, and as I say, for me, now people know what to expect, although we've still got to hear, obviously, what the next tiers are that are coming out. But it's a lot clearer now, thankfully, again, through a huge amount of work across the whole sector to make sure that the sector remains open. People listening will go or hear about how you work with Sport England, you work with the government. How does it actually work? Do you have the culture secretary on speed dial? Can you get Boris on his mobile? <laughs> I can't get Boris on the mobile. Um, but you know what? What's been great during this, the, the sports minister in particular, Nigel and Anna, who works with him and Ben, we've been on you know, daily calls and, and weekly calls when, when it first hit. And, and again, with Sporting and daily, if not hourly contact in terms of getting that guidance done. And when things aren't going well, it, it, it takes a text to say, by the way, we've forgotten this. And they, they have been reacting incredibly quickly throughout this process. So um, it's the first time in my 30 odd years in this industry that we've been able to move policy so quickly um, and responsibly. It's not been anybody leading it in any way. It's as a collective driving this forwards. And the, the other thing that's happened is there's lots of different elements of our sector, as, as uh, your listeners know, but the, the relationship we have with SIMSPA, the Chartered Institute for Managed Sports Activity, which is the people bit, ourselves, which is the, the national organisations, and UK Active, the leisure sector part, we have all worked together through this alongside Sporting England. And I've never known that happen. And for me, that's a real positive outcome for us going forwards. You mentioned Nigel Huddleston. We met him actually in Birmingham, where he was at the unveiling of the, the venue for the beach volleyball and the three-on-three -three basketball for the Commonwealth Games. Um, he did suggest that he would like to be a guest on Great British Bosses. So next time you text him, if you could remind him, we have emailed him that request, but we're, we're yet to hear. I, I do understand he's quite busy. but I will mention it. I'll, when I get off this, uh, I'll mention it to him, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that, Lisa. On a more serious note, you say you represent 300 UK sports and activity organisations. You have as part of that the Football Association, the ECB, the RFU. How do you marry up their needs, their wants with, like you say, the Zumba section to bring 300 organisations together for a consistent approach at a time like this? Yeah, it just depends, to be fair, on, on the types of policies that we're working on. On this particular COVID response, we have all worked together for the same reasons, to open up activity, to keep people active and healthy, uh, to stop loneliness, etc., etc. So 
COVID is actually a quite an, an easy one because it is a crisis that we all want to keep the sector open. Uh, there are differences between some of our members in terms of you know, access to waterways. We, we represent Ramblers, we represent Anglin. So there's some differences there. But, um, but overall, what we try to do, we have different divisions, so different sections of members. So there's a movement and dance division that we work with. There's a major spectator sports division. There's the outdoor sports division. And we work through those divisions in terms of key policies that we'll be working on. Um, and during my time at the Alliance in the last year or so, we've not had any, any specific conflicts of, of policies that have been coming forwards. Um, and, and as I say, we work with, with all of them. Some sports need, need more support. A lot of our members are unfunded. Um, so we've been supporting them in, in COVID. So we, we managed to secure funding to pay for 28 Zoom licenses, which sounds really simple. Um, but when you've got an organisation that can't do any activity and a lot of the people taking part, let's say in Zumba classes or Pilates, uh, maybe slightly older and maybe living on their own and have no access to the outside world to have that Zumba class online was an absolute lifeline so we took the decision to pay for those licenses which the FA would not need nor the RFU or ECB they might need some some support in terms of the review of the gambling act coming up for example. And you mentioned obviously you've been CEO at the Sport and Recreation Alliance since May 2019. A challenging first 18 months of obviously been been on your website you've got this strategy which was called heart of an active nation that strategy I, I, as far as i understand was sort of due to end this year so was that meant to be your inbox for 2020 working on, on what happens next and have you been able to do any of that work Yes, absolutely. So one of the parts of our, our strategies is always about um, being fit for the future and working on behalf of our members. And we have worked on behalf of our members this year. We've, we've responded to 70 of them purely just on the return to play guidance. And as I say, we've supported 28 through Zoom licences. So that is part of our strategy and it always will be. Our members are core to what we do um, and that's what we've been doing. And as you say, we're coming to the, the end of that four-year cycle, as, as many sports are in the quad, and we're just re-looking at what the next strategy will be, doing a little bit of consultation with our members. And, and I have to say, one of the key things moving forwards, and a, a lot has been through COVID, but pre-COVID, is around diversity and inclusion. We think that will be an absolute pillar in terms of what we'll do as an organisation to support our members through that. And Lisa, is it just England? It is, yes. So there are also, SRA is in England. There's similar organisations in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And we meet every fortnight. Um, and as you can imagine, during COVID in particular, that we've been trying to discuss, because there's lots of British bodies, as, as you well know, um, what the ramifications are of the different guidance. Um, so, yeah, but we are the English body. I want to get into coming out of lockdown two in England. Obviously, when we came out of lockdown one, we had golf and, and tennis, which was the first kind of sports that were released. You've worked incredibly hard, I know, with UK Active to get gyms and swimming pools added to that list. When we come out of lockdown too, is there anything else that needs to happen? I think in terms of looking at the impact at grassroots level, we need to understand which of those clubs and organisations and groups have really been affected. And I mean by really being affected, these are organisations that are not used to the system that we all know. Um, so the ones that are used to getting funding through Sport England, which is a great source of funding at this moment in time, they will get that funding. But there's a whole cohort of other organisations in local communities that may not know how to access that. So for me, coming out of this next phase is making sure that throughout the whole sector, we have enough communications and support and maybe even looking at a different system to get people to be able to access the funding they're going to need. 
because um, we know that you know they've not had membership income, they've not had competition income, they've not had secondary sales income. There's a huge amount of issues that they've faced, um, and what we don't want is is clubs not to be able to open when in January everybody makes that New Year's resolution to say, you know what, I'm going to get fit, and I think this year might be even more. I'm going to get fit and do more. So we want to make sure that local opportunities are available and they're of quality. Because again, we know from research through Sport England, if it's not a quality experience, people will give up fairly quickly. So it's really critical we have that quality. And that's why you're calling for this Sports Recovery Fund? Yeah, so we've been working across the whole sector. Um, and what's been super is, is the uh, Treasury have released 100 million for the leisure sector, for sports centres, leisure centres, etc. And 300 million, as you said, in relation to the loss of gate receipts. Um, but what we do know, there'll be a, a, a need in the new year in particular, as I say, for 150,000 150, sports clubs at a community, community level across the country, um, ranging from every single sport you can imagine. And what we anticipate is they will have some significant needs. So we're asking the government, we're thanking them for the first two parts of Sports Recovery Fund, but we're saying, please remember grassroots sports is absolutely the bedrock. And we need to make sure that they can, as I say, encourage people to come back and have the right quality service with the right coaches, the right instructors and teachers who have not been earning an income through this, um, ready for the new year. And that's our Saves Our Sport campaign, really. And as I say, we're really pleased with the government's response, but we're just preparing for this next phase when we come out of lockdown. Because there were a few eyebrows when part of the 300 million went to rugby, horse racing. Is there any truth that it was just for posh people? I don't believe so. I, I, I genuinely trust the process that they went through um, in terms of identifying the gate receipt risk. You, you will... You know, your listeners, again, will know how many horse racing activities have been cancelled and spectators have not been able to go. Likewise for rugby, in, in terms of Twickenham and the size of that stadium, um, that is a significant loss at, a, at this particular time in the season um, where there would usually be a huge amount of activity. So it, it, seem, it seems that it's the, the sports that, that are from a particular class. But I would say, you know, netball is in there, basketball is in there, motor racing, greyhound racing. Um, they're smaller figures because their, their gate receipt generation is lower. And as I say, for us, let's not split the sector up because Rugby Union put a huge amount of funding back into the rugby clubs across the country, um, as do horse racing. People will assume it's a, a rich sport. There are many, many stables around the country that are struggling. So we, we have to keep that in mind as well. We want to come on to talk about you and your career path very shortly, Lisa, but you're listening to great British bosses from anything but footy. Our guest on this episode is Lisa Wainwright, the CEO of the Sport and Recreation Alliance. So just final points on this. Do you think that the, the divvying up, if you like, of cash amongst the organisations that you represent, has it been fair or of the bodies that have maybe got the, the louder voices, if you like, come out better from this? I, th I think it's been a, a fair process. Again, Sport England have released a significant amount of funding. I think it's now about 220 million and, it, and it's been increased. Um, and they rolled over funding for the funded sports and then they've had an open fund that's still open now, 16.5 million. It's open for any club uh, activity to, to access. So um, I've not seen the output of where all that money's gone as yet. It'll obviously take time for them to report that. But as far as I'm concerned, the process is open. But it's, it's always the challenge. If you know how to get it, if you're in the system, you will know the system. So as I say, but Sport England are very much aware of that. Um, and they're working through people like the Sport for Development Coalition to try and identify more diverse groups that may not usually traditionally access that funding to do so now. So 
I think when you see the big figures and the 300 million people assume it's just going to the top, but there is significant other funding available and it has been distributed through the Community Emergency Fund. Lisa, you describe yourself on LinkedIn as a lesbian mum of two daughters via IVF and cancer survivor. When you've come through the challenges of two rounds of IVF and the challenge of, of beating cancer, COVID's got nothing on you, has it? <laughs> Not at all. My mother said to me, you know, Lisa, I'm going to send, um, send you posts to the hospital. You spend more time there than you do at home. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I did go into IVF. I had quite a few challenges, but we're, we're fortunate to be very successful. I have two daughters who are now eight and nine who are keeping me busy. And then four days before starting my CEO role at the Alliance, um, out of the, completely out of the blue, I was diagnosed with breast cancer which was a real shock for me, but um, delighted to say that the Alliance were phenomenal in their support, really were phenomenal. And um, a lot of people helped me, a lot of members understood and, and worked with me. And we got through chemo, we got through radio, I lost my hair, I grew my hair, um, lost a lot of weight, put a lot of weight on. And um, just two weeks before lockdown, actually, um, my treatment finished. So I was, again, really, really fortunate that I'd come through that, that treatment at that time. Um, and what it did, actually, it, it prepared me for, for shielding. Because when you're going through chemo, you, you're having to be careful about your immune system. So I'd actually had a year um, of keeping myself to myself, pretty much. And then lockdown started. And I just thought, you know, there's, is there a God out there that's got something against me? Because I was desperate to go out and meet people because I loved that part of the job. But no, I, um, I had to shield and shield really properly shield. So um, I lived upstairs in the house for four months. The kids lived downstairs and, and my wife and uh, we did not touch nor go anywhere near each other for four to five months. It was pretty rough, but I focused on work and, uh, and that helped me through it and, and started to exercise again. I'd, I'd had a tough couple of rounds of chemo and, and couldn't walk during uh, some of the phases for a couple of weeks. Um, so it was time for me to focus on getting my immune system built up. Uh, using the indoor bike and I, I bought an electric bike I took I threw away all those performance goals that I used to have and I said you know what if it gets me out and I can get up the hills then I'm just going to have a, a, a little electric bike and I absolutely love it. When you say about shielding and, and separating the house there are some people who wouldn't know that that's what shielding actually meant that it's not just staying inside the four walls it's actually separating the four walls. Yeah I mean shielding was really tough as I say we my Karina and my wife slept downstairs, I was up, the kids were down. We had posters up for the kids to say, do not come in this room. So they were not allowed in this office, clearly because I wanted my own space. <laughs> because if they, were, if they got COVID, there was a high chance I could get it. So we, we used separate bathrooms. We didn't eat at the same place. Um, they were, when they came home, we were lucky. Our child was closed and just open for our children because, again, they understood the risks to me. We were quite close with them. And um, as soon as the, the kids came back from the childminders, they had to strip completely and shower before they were allowed in the house. And, and again, washing hands constantly and, and sanitising. It, it was because they'd kind of been used to it. They hadn't kissed mum because of my immunosystem during all the chemo stuff. They weren't cuddling me just in case. They'd kind of got used to it. But this was quite extreme in terms of being regimented that uh, we just needed to be extra careful while I built my immune system up. How do you go about explaining that to your kids? Well, they're, they're, kids just take it as it is, to be fair. You know, they found it quite a giggle. We put these posters up, no entry, mummy's asleep. And we just made it part of a game. And, and as I say, because um, during the treatment, we, we used a book about mummy, mummy's found a lump, which is by Macmillan. And um, they learned a little bit about looking after themselves and a little bit about hospitals and, and hygiene and things. So 
it was it was a fairly easy transition for them to understand that mummy needed a little bubble around her so that she was protected um and they dealt with it pretty well to be fair that they you know so long as they'd got their ipads and they could wander off and walk the dogs and have a bike ride they were pretty happy you mentioned your wife karina your daughters mackenzie and bowen we should mention them as well is it something you do deliberately that when someone requests the, the standard headshot of you, Lisa, for an event or to put in a pamphlet or anything, you don't send them the standard headshot, do you? It's you, your wife and your two daughters in a swimming pool. Why? Because, you know what, in leadership, people are supposed to look a certain way in a certain suit with a certain hair doing lots of makeup. And, this and, and if you want to do that, that's great. But I'm not going to edit out my parts of my life that's really important. Yeah, I'm a chief executive. Yeah, I'm a leader. But I also happen to have a wife. I happen to be gay. So what? Um, and I happen to have two kids. So you can be a leader and you can embrace that. And I'm a real advocate of being an authentic leader. And that's why I always send that. And if they don't accept it, I refuse the interview. I'm very clear. If you only want to hear about my work, I'm not interested in talking to you. And you've been quite critical, haven't you, of the, the lack of openly gay and lesbian people in positions of authority in sport. How much work needs to be done there, Lisa? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a network of um, LGBTQ plus people within the sector, and, and I'm aware of those. Some are out and some aren't. And, and I've always felt, you know, I've, I've been really lucky in my career. I can't recall any incidents of homophobia at all. Um, now, they might have been, I might have not got a job or a promotion, but I've always been really accepted as Lisa and welcomed and, and, and embraced, whether that's been at an international level, on a number of committees I've been on, or domestically. And, and I think sport is a really welcoming environment, particularly for, for lesbians. I will say that in terms of men, it's slightly different in some of the sports. And I just hope that people would come out, because having that person that you, you recognise and can see as being out gives other people strength. So, you know, like Harvey Milk from San Francisco Mayor, when I was at university, we had um, uh, a cafe named after him. And, and it just gave me some insight into what somebody else has gone through for my freedoms. Um, and, I, and I take that responsibility on. And, and hence, I came out. I haven't spoken a huge amount about it until the Rainbow Laces Summit a few years ago. I decided it was time I, I should talk about it. You know, I'm in a very safe environment with, with a wife and children and family is supportive. And, and you know, my organisation is as well. You talk about the Rainbow Laces campaign. I mean... It's a, it's a terrific start, but much more needs to happen. Do we need an openly gay Premier League footballer, for example? Is that a glass ceiling that, that you want smashed? Yeah, I think the Rainbow Lace is a super campaign coming up 9th of uh, December, if I'm right. Um, in terms of the Premier League and footballers, it, again, it's their personal choice. Um, it, it is a personal choice for anyone to come out, whether you're a footballer or whether you're not. So for me, I would love them to be able to feel confident to come out. But I also understand... In some scenarios, that's not the right decision for them to take. It is a huge story when someone like, you know, Robbie Rogers, who was a Leeds United player, came out. It is a huge story. It is front page news. Do you understand why it's front page news, but in a way, Phil, that it shouldn't be an issue? It shouldn't be a story? Yeah, as, as I said to you, it's, it's part of daily life. Um, I think we all pretty much accept it's part of daily life now, but there will be people who are homophobic. We know that. I still hear stories about, you know, people being beat upon a bus for holding hands or kissing their partner. And that's just recent news. Um, so there are still some, some dangers and some issues, but the strength of more people coming out and the stories being, being shared um, will help people be more open. And, and I have to say the, the generation coming through now don't, don't see this as any different. I, I think this is a traditional view that, that develops culturally. And, I, and I'm really positive in terms of 
you know, my children's experience at their school, they, they talk about having two mummies and nobody said a word, they just crack on and play. And that's the, the culture that, that I hope that we're all growing up into. But as I say, in, in terms of um, some of the governing bodies and some of the sports, that I'm sure there will be challenges because it's change and it's different. One of your other ambassadorial roles is with Women on Boards UK, making sure that you get more women in, in senior roles, particularly in sport. British sport is reasonably okay for women leading women at kind of high level i mean there's lots of different sports as um again a lot of your listeners will know a few years back in 2017 when the governance code was launched part of the requirements in that governance code was to have 30 percent more women on boards um now we've, we've seen the sector change a real cultural change we've got over 40 percent of women now on governing body boards which is a great step what we need to work through now is the chief executives plus the executives within within the sport. So there's some great examples. Netball has always been a leading sport. It's for women. That's the sport that I came through. I was mentored by some phenomenal chief execs like Liz Nicholl and Pauline Harrison from, from a netball perspective. Um, my days at volleyball, we had a really strong uh, contingent of female directors, and, and there still, still are. But I say the sector's changed quite a lot since then. Um, and a number of the bigger sports like the, the RFU and the FA and others are starting to increase the number of women on their boards as well. So I wouldn't say there's a standout, absolutely brilliant, this one. They're all doing really good, actually, in this area. And, and we're championing something called the International Working Group for Women and Girls, um, which is um, a bid for us to host this for four years between 2022 and 2026. And it has that leadership angle, but it's a global level. So not just domestically, but, but the global level as well. Are you supporting... The call for Sue Campbell to be the Football Association Chair person? I, I, I've known Sue for many years, again, from our netball years, and she's a phenomenal woman. I think if Sue wants to take that on, um, it would be a great challenge for her. Um, clearly, it's for the FA to, to decide. But what, Sue, would it mean? Sue, what would it mean, though, if football did that? Um, I mean, I'm not from football, but in terms of um, a phenomenally professional, inspirational leader with a vision who understands the sector inside out and has demonstrated that through her leadership at UK Coaching, the Youth Sport Trust and at UK Sport. You know, she's got the real credentials and has political links, obviously, through, through her previous roles. So for me, it would be a step change for, for football um, because they'd be appointing somebody with that skill set and experience. And I think that's really important in terms of whether being a woman or not makes a difference. I really hope it wouldn't, genuinely. <laughs> I think in this day and age, you would look at somebody's skills and competence and experience um, and drive and, and, and go through that route. Um, but as I say, for me, I know there's some challenges in terms of the age limit and she's currently employed by them from an independence. But let, let's look at a common sense approach on skill sets and the best fit for that role. And if she is, there may well be other candidates out there. But if she is, then, then go for it. One of your reasons to be if you like at the sport and recreation alliance is promoting sport for young people you want to give every child that right to be active when we look back then before we wrap up on 2020 do we feel that there will be significant challenges down the line to try and and get back what perhaps we've lost over the last nine or ten months yeah, and that's one of my, my biggest fears. I was really lucky. I'd got a PE teacher in the 1980s that took me under a wing and it was through her because I, I couldn't be bothered with schoolwork, but she wouldn't let me play netball and athletics unless I did my schoolwork. And, you know, I was the first person out of my family to get to university and that was because of her um, encouraging me through sport. And my fear, and the reason I say that is, is, is in terms of lockdown, we know that 44% of 
kids were doing less than the 30 minutes of the daily exercise and they've got out of the routine and we know if you get out of the habit it's really difficult to get back into it so I, I do worry about young people coming back and I know we're working with the Youth Sport Trust and the Association for PE and Sports Leaders UK to find solutions to this because it is absolutely critical we get those habits back. So the final question that we asked when we spoke to Hugh Edwards at UK Active recently was what would be his message for Boris Johnson? You said you've not got the Prime Minister on speed dial. He is on Twitter though. He's probably got a Facebook account as well, Lisa. And if not, Nigel Huddleston can pass the message on. But what would be that message to the Prime Minister? What would you like to say to him? Yeah, I mean, Boris has been a great advocate of the sector. I'll, I'll say that for him. But the simple message is, place sport and recreation at the heart of recovery. Put it at the heart of society. You know what? It's not only good for physical health and mental health, it's good for all sorts of reasons. The economy, for every pound you invest, Boris and Rishi, that creates four pounds. Now, isn't that just a great economic outcome, as well as saving billions from the NHS? And not to mention, we'd have great fun being socially active with people um, and reducing our loneliness. So, Boris, use your common sense, Boris. You know this. Put sport and physical activity at the heart of each of your government strategies. Yep, don't just look at the advertising and reducing the number of advertising, you know, boards that have got chocolate and, and unhealthy foods on. Let's put sport and physical activity in every single policy area because it will be the answer. So that's what I'd say to him. It's a clear message and it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Lisa Wainwright, CEO of the Sport and Recreation Alliance. Thanks for talking to great British bosses. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, John. Thanks, Michael. Sports Social Podcast Network.